0: words matter. Calling these plants wild foods, feral foods, ancestral foods, makes them a lot more appealing than calling them weeds.
1: Welcome to Nature X Design. Today, we will hear from Professor Philip B. Stark on the power and potential of edible weeds, or as they will henceforth be known, wild and feral foods. He will reveal how nature and design come together in these forgotten plants to create ideal food sources. First, an introduction.
0: My name is Philip Stark. I'm a professor of statistics at the University of California at Berkeley. One of the things that I work on is wild and feral foods and the role that they might play in our food system, especially as uh, climate changes. I started a project called Berkeley Open Source Food. Um, I guess it's been five or six years ago now. Uh, part of our Mission is to study the nutrition, toxicology, and availability of wild foods in urban ecosystems, uh, and also to try to get these foods reincorporated into modern diets. Um, a lot of these foods grow between the rows of farms and you know at the margins of farms and essentially amount of food waste. They don't get it in, they don't get into the food supply. Um, so trying to show farmers that there's an opportunity to get additional revenue, um, that there's reasons to actually embrace these plants on farms, uh, that they can be a source of revenue in addition to a source of habitat, um, uh, pollinator uh, habitat, uh, and so on. They can be an economic cover crop. I've also been trying to work with chefs to get them to put weeds on plates uh, and to that end we have an event once a year called Wild and Feral Food Week uh, where we've involved restaurants, uh, foragers, distilleries, uh, bars and all kinds of things all all over the globe. Where a lot of people see weeds, I see food waste.
1: On surface level, there seems to be few barriers to incorporating wild and feral foods into our diets. They are already growing on farms Why not incorporate them instead of eradicating them? They are nutritionally dense and delicious. Why aren't we eating them every day? The real question is, what would it take to convince you, the regular consumer, to incorporate foraged foods into your diet? Would you buy so-called weeds if they were sold at your grocery store? Would you go out and pick them for yourself? After this interview, Professor Stark took us foraging and we were convinced. Maybe you will be too. Thank you for joining us today. Let's dig in.
0: Many of these edible weeds are incredibly nutritionally dense. They compare very favorably to spinach or kale or other things that we think of as especially nutritious greens. So there's an opportunity, they, they are superfoods in, in that sense. How does that happen? Like why is it that these things are so nutritionally dense? Well, a lot of the things that we have bred for um, when we've done selective breeding of plants have been related to yield and shelf life. And yield is measured in pounds. It's not measured in nutrition. And shelf life, I mean, matters if you're going to transport food a great distance, but if you're going to eat things that are more local and fresher, it's it's less of an issue. Um, it's hard to get anything that is more local or fresher than edible things that are growing in your own front yard or, you know, along the sidewalk even. We've also tended to selectively breed for mildness and sweetness in the flavors of things. And it turns out that a lot of the nutritionally important things in plants have intense flavors and are not sweet. And so in the process of, ble- of breeding for things that have high yield, mild flavors and long shelf life, we've actually accidentally bred a lot of the nutrition out of the things that we're eating. Embracing things with stronger flavors is actually important for our individual health. Beyond that, there's all of this food that's going to waste. So it really is food waste and it's wasted culinary opportunity. When I've worked with chefs, um, the opportunity to have a new ingredient, to have a new tool, a new thing that they can make deliciousness from uh, is, is incredibly interesting. Really, we, we're missing all along the line. We're missing ecological advantages, we're missing um, nutritional advantages, we're missing culinary opportunity, um, we're wasting food.
1: If we are missing the opportunities that wild foods present, there must be a reason. It's easy to jump to the conclusion That these ancestral foods don't stand up to our modern genetically modified offerings. But is that the case?
0: If I were trying to design a uh, a genetically engineered organism to be the ideal crop, the kinds of things that I would want uh, that plant to have, I would want it to compete very successfully with other plants. I would like it to be able to germinate in a broad variety of conditions. I would like it to start to produce edible parts very early in the season and continue to have edible parts very late in the season. I would like it not to require fertilizer, not to require water to be added to it um, deliberately. Um, I would like it to be extremely to produce lots and lots and lots of seeds um, that are then you know, viable in the soil later. I would like the seeds to be able to stay viable for a long period of time. I would like it to be able to out-compete other plants by doing things like putting out a basil rosette that will smother things that are trying to compete with it. Um, I would like it to be nonspecific about how it gets pollinated, either be able to pollinate itself or be pollinated by a broad variety of insects or birds or or other things. Those are basically all characteristics of weeds. Um, And uh, so what we would really like is for our food crops to be like weeds. Uh, The miracle is that we already have food crops that are like weeds, namely the edible weeds, um, the wild and feral plants that we've been consuming since before the dawn of agriculture and then consuming along with agriculture for more than 10,000 years. A lot of these plants are still uh, very much with us. If we don't actively try to eradicate them with chemical weapons, they pop up um, all around us because they thrive wherever human beings have disturbed the soil. I think that these Wild and feral plants can play a role in soil conservation and improving the fertility of soil, increasing the amount of organic carbon in soil by embracing them as cover crops, uh, in addition to using them as green manures and things like that after the fact. My feeling is that as climate changes, there's going to be a lot of pressure to introduce new genetically modified food Crops, um, CRISPR-based food crops, and so on, to try to have things that are more adapted to different growing conditions, whether it's higher temperatures or less rain or more rain or, or you know whatever um, whatever changes are locally. I personally hope that we resist that, despite the fact that there's profits to be made in in that. That really is kind of the agribusiness approach to it. Instead, uh, I think that what we'll find as time goes by is that plants that we have traditionally considered to be nuisance plants or weeds, uh, pests of some kind, um, become more attractive as crops, that they will do better under those conditions and uh, give us an opportunity to kind of follow what nature is already providing for us. Nature has um, unlimited periods of time to do the biological experiments and produce species that do well in in different environments. And and what we see today, by and large, are the successes after many, many, many trials over many, many, many years. And in contrast, um, to think that we can engineer our way out of this, um, I think is there's a lot of hubris in that. Um, we o- often see that when we try to make things better, there's unintended consequences, and uh, those can be quite severe. So, um, you know, How does nature farm? It, it, among other things, it's incredibly diverse, and uh, the idea of trying to farm in monocultures is really setting up an incredibly brittle system as opposed to the kind of resilient complexity that we get in more natural ecosystems and so farming in a way that embraces that complexity and embraces the biodiversity produces uh, a food system that is more resilient uh, whether it's to pests or to climate change um, or you know even to economic conditions and fashion So.
1: so next step how do we open our minds and other consumers minds to actually create a market for these foods That's the second half of the question Philip Stark's research seeks to answer.
0: Attitudes towards foraging are really strongly culturally determined. And in our kind of global north and in North America in particular, our culture is pretty friendly to foraging of some kinds and not to foraging of other kinds. Foraging fruit is something that I think anybody is comfortable with, picking berries or something like that. That's that's a very low lift, as it were. Um, Foraging mushrooms is a bigger lift and there's some real danger involved in picking the wrong thing, eating the wrong thing. You can die from, from picking the wrong, eating the wrong mushroom. Foraging greens is actually interesting because the barriers to that I think largely have to do with how separated we've become from the source of our own food. The way I describe it uh, is that in the Global North, we have a food clergy that tells us what is and isn't food, that blesses things that are supposed to be eaten. You know, how do you know whether something has been blessed by the clergy? Well, it's presented to you on a plate at a restaurant, or it's on the grocery store shelf, it's in a plastic bag, it has some sign that um, that it's been sanctified. when food has been sanctified, we don't think about the biography of that thing that is on our plate. We don't worry about where it came from. We don't imagine it actually growing in soil. I think the vast majority of Americans are would be very uncomfortable with the notion that their food actually comes from soil, that soil is dirty, it's icky, why would I eat anything that's growing in dirt? I want something in a nice, clean plastic bag, right? So asking people to forage is asking them to recognize that the food actually comes from soil. One of the first questions I get when I talk to people about foraging, especially foraging in urban environments rather than in more quote unquote natural environments is what about dog pee, right? And it's amazing that somehow if this plant is growing on the ground we can immediately visualize a dog peeing on it and we worry about that. But if we're looking at the grocery store and something is on the shelf, we don't think about the history of that. There's a lovely paragraph in the introduction to Yule Gibbon's book, um, "Stalking the Wild Asparagus." He says, summing the effect of, some people will object on grounds of sanitation um, and uh, so- something like that. You know, think about this head of lettuce that is on the grocery store shelf. You know, think about whose hands planted it. <clears throat> the Herbicides and fertilizers and whatnot that were dumped on it whose hands harvested it put it on a truck It went down the highway exposed to exhaust exposed to brake dust exposed to all of these things Was unloaded by another set of hands put on the shelf by another set of hands picked over by 23 other Consumers before you picked it up, right and in contrast that dandelion growing next to the sidewalk You're probably the first human being to touch it Right, it in some sense is far more sanitary than that lettuce. And if that head of lettuce was an organic lettuce, it might have well have been grown in manure. How does manure compare to dog pee? I don't know. Um, dog pee, moreover, is you know non-toxic, sterile, and water soluble. It washes off. Right. This is kind of the last thing that I would be worried about. Um, so this kind of li- uh, One of the biggest barriers to foraging, I really think, is getting in touch with the source of our food and recognizing that everything we eat kind of grew in dirt or in the ocean or it's a dead animal. Um, And that's just the truth of it. Um, The notion of an acquired taste, um, we talk about that in some contexts, you know, whether it's coffee and tea, uh, booze, you know, spirits, Uh, and whatnot, we have like this notion of, you know, well, whiskey is an acquired taste. Um, We don't really think about, you know, radicchio as an acquired taste. Um, It it really, you know, it's kind of odd. Um, There are reasons that human beings have an aversion to some bitter flavors because bitterness has been a sign of something being rancid, uh, for instance. Um, And so there are reasons that we have preferences around that. But by the same token, um, I mean, I enjoy bitter foods. I mean, I find, I find bitterness interesting, I find sourness interesting, I find spiciness interesting. I mean, all of the kind of diversity of things that I can eat, I, I, I enjoy that, it's fun. Uh, and, and increasingly, I think we do in the United States, so where's bitterness getting reintroduced into our diets? Well, certainly through things like coffee and chocolate and tea. Um, also in cocktails, uh, kind of surprisingly people, you know, deliberately add bitters to cocktails because it produces a more balanced flavor. Um, in vegetables, uh, you know, 15 years ago you wouldn't have seen endive or radicchio on the menu in very many places and now you see things like that and arugula and other vegetables that have more intense flavors are available at the grocery store. It would have been, you know, very niche um, uh, not that long ago. Well, I think that uh, you know, the American palate is expanding. Um, that said, it's really difficult for any vegetable to compete with, say, Red Hot Cheetos um, on, a, on a flavor basis and to compete with consumer products that have been deliberately engineered to make you want more. Um, so that kind of addictive response that we get to some consumer packaged goods, it's kind of hard for a plant to compete with that. Um, if you're eating something that is a, a more complete food, a more natural food, we tend to eat and then become sated and then stop eating um, as opposed to eating something in a, in a much more compulsive way. So I'm not really answering your question, which is about how to educate our palates. And I think part of it is to just pay more attention to what things taste like um, because some things are really interesting and delicious. Um, I used to describe whiskey, in particular, as you know, something that um, it's almost the definition of an aesthetic experience when it comes to taste. That nobody thinks that it is delicious. What is? delicious about it is the relationship among the flavors. It is not a pleasant thing on your tongue, but it is incredibly interesting and we derive enormous pleasure from things like that because of the relationships among things, not because the sensation itself is enjoyable. So similarly, looking at a piece of artwork, a piece of artwork can be incredibly beautiful, not because it makes our eyes feel good, but because of the way it interacts with our brain on a, on a much deeper level. So similarly, I think that, that flavors, um, you know, composed dishes and relationships among things, are incredibly interesting and bring out this kind of higher-order deliciousness that's separate from whether the underlying flavor itself um, pleases the tongue. But the spectrum of flavors that are available in these wild foods is enormous. It is far broader than what's available in on the grocery store shelves. They range from, you know, aromatic to piquant to, um, you know, peppery, minty, sour, uh, sweet, mild. <laughs> Umami, you know the kind of uh, more meaty, seaweedy, uh, beefy, you know kinds of things. There are there are wild plants which maybe we'll get a chance to see today that actually taste like beef. Um, there are things that are sour, kind of lemony. There are things that are bitter, and you know, some degree of bitterness is interesting, especially mixed in with other things. So there's an enormous range of flavors that are available in these, in these wild plants. There's also an enormous range of textures. I mean, we tend to have, if you look at lettuces um, in the grocery store, they all tend to be um, you know, relatively juicy, The leaves tend to be, well, I mean, I guess they range from very soft for something like a a, a butter lettuce. um, uh but onto things that are crisper like uh, like a romaine uh, and so on but there's an even broader spectrum of textures once you start looking at these wild plants some things have you know a slight fuzziness to them that that you know that is very interesting some have relatively little tooth that is they're really thin and you can bite right through them very easily some are more succulent they have you know a thicker body to the leaf and you get more of a juicy thing going on um, some of them are a little bit you know frizzy or this or that and all of those things make for more interesting eating. So if we start paying more attention to actually the sensory experience of eating, I think that alone helps sell these plants as as legitimate foods.
1: Are you convinced? Ready to try foraged food for yourself? You can learn more about foraging by searching Berkeley open source food in your preferred browser. After this interview, Stark took us foraging.
0: And here we have herb Robert, edible, medicinal, three-corner onions, with three-corner onions, dead straw, bobsalis pescapre. This is Doc. It's in the Rumex family, same family as buckwheat, nice lemony, a little bit tannic. Um. Again, I think I mentioned before that lettuce is one of the crops that was originally an agricultural weed in early agriculture. And if you think about the selective breeding that needed to happen to get something that is this bitter uh, to be as sweet as modern lettuces are, it's pretty, pretty impressive. Well, now time for the pocket dump. Um, let's see uh, what I managed to collect for dinner. Some sweet fennel and some and cana, the short pod mustard for tonight's beverage, pineapple weed uh, flowers.
1: We provide every podcast as an article with an accompanying video that goes even further. You can find our inspiration hub just by searching Naturex Design in your preferred browser. Thank you for joining us.